The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration Quirinius, of governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we are sitting in the uh, Advent season, and as you just heard, now that we're done with uh, the letter that was written to the Christians, those Jewish Christians, letter to the Hebrews, we're going to concentrate uh, for these Sundays leading up to uh, Christmas Eve and Christmas morning um, uh, out of Luke, Luke chapter 2. If you grew up in a tradition of uh, church to where they would really concentrate on those Sundays leading into uh, Christmas Eve, there were various themes. Um, lighting of candles usually were attributed to that as well, and it'd be various themes like hope. We concentrated on that theme last week. This morning, we're going to look at that theme of faith and what does that mean as it relates to the coming of Christ, how our faith is to be ultimately centered on Christ, how we don't find our faith unfounded in the one who is the promise keeper, who's going to keep all of his promises. And then the Sundays to come, we'll be looking at that idea of joy and peace as they all find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. So for some of us who grew up in that tradition, that is the kind of way we're going to roll over the next couple of Sundays, looking at uh, specifically these different sections from the Christmas story, the classic Luke chapter 2 um, version of it. You'll find the remainder of details of the Christmas story in uh, Ma- uh, Matthew's gospel. But we're going to concentrate on the Sundays leading up Uh, to Christmas Eve here out of Luke chapter 2, just to give you an idea of where we're going. Our sermon title this morning is simply going to be called this, Promise Keeper. We're going to be talking about the Promise Keeper. And the main idea is this, the Bethlehem baby clearly demonstrates that God will always keep all of his promises. I don't know if you ever thought about that before. We can lose sight of such beautiful, beautiful realities of who God is because Christmas just becomes that thing we do. The songs we sing, the stockings we hang, the tree we trim, and we can lose sight of the details because we've heard the details a thousand times over. One of the things I was just telling Pastor Brian is as I'm finding myself getting older, I'm trying to fight for the childlike faith for Christmas because I didn't really lay hold of that growing up. Our home didn't really try to dial in and really seek to understand like what was going on on that night when God the Son incarnate, the highborn king, became the lowborn king and lay in that manger that night. We've heard that so much that we lose the awesomeness of what was taking place on that night. The second person of the Trinity came to earth, Emmanuel, 
God was now with us. And my hope is that over the next couple of Sundays, that through the preaching of God's word, the Holy Spirit would stoke within us a truly childlike awesomeness to the realities of what is going on, the songs we sing, the stories we read and we remember out of the Gospels. So this morning, we're going to concentrate on this idea of how God keeping His promises, the, the Bethlehem baby is God keeping His promise as He said would happen. Christmas had to happen because God keeps His promises. And then what does that mean for the stoking and the firming up and the fortifying of our faith in him who is the promise keeper, okay? That's where we're going this morning. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask that the Holy Spirit would empower the preaching of his word, open our eyes to see Jesus, open our minds to grasp these things anew, and then we'll dive into these five verses here out of Luke 2, okay? So let's go to the Lord and pray. Father, our aim is to see you magnified. We want the Son to receive the worship he is worthy to receive as we consider his low and humble beginnings. Born, the lowborn king in the little town of Bethlehem. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to see Jesus afresh, would you open our minds to grasp the good news of Christmas anew? Holy Spirit, more than I have a desire for us to see these things, you, Holy Spirit, have that desire, and not only do you have that desire to magnify Jesus, but you have the power and the ability to turn our hearts and minds to embrace him with love anew. So we ask, Holy Spirit, would you come and do this so that we would leave here changed this morning, different from the way we came in because we've heard from the living God through his word to us as we considered Christ, the Bethlehem baby. We pray these things in the name of our great, mighty, holy, merciful, good, and loving name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we are, as I've said, and as you surely are aware, we're in an Advent season, and my hope is that uh, you're leveraging this season by using some form of Advent devotional. There are a dime a dozen out there if you need help. My encouragement is don't wake up on Christmas morning and be like, oh, like, what, what just happened, man? Like four weeks scorched by, and like I missed an opportunity to lead my family to sit Christ at the center. So my first thought is, if you need help in doing that, or you're like, I just don't know what to do in that regard, please come and talk to a pastor. We will bend over backwards to help you keep Christ at the center of the season. This past week, we were doing that in our family devotionals during our family worship time. We're just reading an Advent devotional through the first two chapters of Matthew. 
And we touched on a theme in this particular devotional this past week, which turns out to be just probably one of my favorite biblical themes that shines super bright at Christmas time. And it's that theme of God's unrestrained ability to be able to keep the promises that he makes. You see, when Yahweh promises something will come to pass, the Christmas season we find ourselves in says we can have every confidence that it will come to pass. When God says, I'm going to do it, the Christmas season comes along and serves as a reminder to say to us, what God said he's going to get done, he's going to get done. And that's because the events surrounding the birth of the Bethlehem baby, they clearly demonstrate something to us. They clearly demonstrate that God is the promise keeper. And as the promise keeper, he is working in his world, keeping all of the promises that he has made to his people. And then when someone proves themselves to be a keeper of the promises that they make, what this does is this invites us to come and trust and rest in him all the more. Thus, when we look at the birth of Jesus and we consider the events surrounding his birth, they're not only about promises fulfilled, because they are about that. We're going to talk about that this morning. What we're going to see is certain events were taking place because God promised they would take place. But what I want us to see more importantly is as we catch yet another glimpse of the promise keeper keeping his promises, what I want us to do is walk out of here not just going, well, that's cool. God just keeps his promises and kudos for him and sort of clap him on the back and be like, well, wow, what a great, what a great God we have. I don't want merely just that. I do want our hearts to be warmed with the realities that when God speaks to you and says, I will accomplish X, you can take that to the bank and cash it in. But what I more importantly want is for our hearts to hear that, to receive that, and then to stoke within us, God is solely, truly, genuinely worthy of trust. And my faith in him propels me to walk and lean on him and trust on him and go to him and pray to him. Why? Because we considered the baby in the manger. That's what I'm hoping for us this morning. The birth of Jesus and the events surrounding his birth are not only about promises fulfilled, but an invitation to walk by faith with confidence in our God whose promises cannot fail. Listen. When you hear the story of Christmas, the gospel of Christmas, the good news of Christmas, it is a tapestry. It's a beautiful picture, and the tapestry of Christmas is woven with the unbreakable threads of divine guarantee. And biblical faith, faith that is sure of things hoped for, Faith that is certain of things not seen, this type of faith is further fortified when we slow down, stop the mad Amazon rush, take a breath, open our Bibles, and consider the Christmas story and what it is all about. 
And when you slow down and you go to classic Luke chapter 2, what we begin to see is point number one, that the promise keeper is at work in his world. The promise keeper is at work in his world. These are verses 1, 2, and 3 in your Bible. So open up your copy of Scripture. Turn on your copy of Scripture if you have it digitally in front of you. And notice Luke chapter 2, how our brother in Christ Luke begins to write starting in verse 1. He says this, classic words. In those days, he says, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. If you know your Bible well, what you will know is that the words we just read were written by a man named Luke who sought to gather the evidence surrounding the details of Christ's life, and he began to put them into an orderly account, he tells us in Luke chapter 1, so that we might know what we need to know about Christ in order to repent of our sins and place our faith in Christ. And so as he is writing about the birth of Jesus, Luke, who we are told through history was a doctor, he does what doctors do, and he gets very exact with key pieces of information. He's very exact with the details. And he gives us historical details surrounding the historic event of God the Son cloaked in flesh coming and being born in Bethlehem. What we come to learn is that at this time, at the birth of Christ, the sole superpower in the world where Christ found himself living and breathing and doing what he was called to do was imperial Rome. And at the top of the heap was a man named Caesar Augustus, and governors like the man Quirinius were also in positions of power at this time. It was in these days, says Luke, when these guys were in power, representatives of imperial Rome, that a decree goes forth from Caesar Augustus, and here's what Caesar Augustus wants. He wants all the world to be registered. And that doesn't necessarily mean every single person in the world, but every person under the Roman world, under his rule and reign, he wants all of them to go and be registered in a census. Now, history reveals that Augustus was an emperor on the move. He was one who was doing actually decent things and getting stuff set up in, in the world just as it relates to um, the governmental sphere that fell underneath him. And constantly was he working to usher in, if you remember your history class, something called the Pax Romana, Roman peace. He's wanting the peace of Rome and his eyes to spread all over the world. But as you know, with most things in life, expansion like this costs money. And the way that he is going to raise money so that the Pax Romana can spread was to conduct a census. I need to know how many people are under my rule so we can begin to tax them accordingly and get some cash flow coming into the Roman coffers so we can do the thing that we need to do. So what do Caesars do? They make decrees. And to make it easier, he says, what I want is for people to go back to their place of birth. And so with a simple decree from Caesar... 
what happens under imperial Rome is there's this great upheaval, this great uprooting of people as people here and there and far and near have to leave where they're at to go back to their places of birth. And what we find is that Joseph, random man, random carpenter, random little town named Nazareth, gets plucked up, uprooted, and now finds himself having to go to Bethlehem to be registered because this is the town he was from. All of this, all of this Luke is saying, if you're looking in these first three verses, is taking place as a result of Rome's imperial power. But Luke also wants you to see that it's not just taking place because some guy named Caesar Augustus in Rome wants this to be done. Luke also wants us to see past these earthly powers to a greater invisible power that is at play. You see, it's to our detriment that we tend to breeze through these seemingly peripheral verses surrounding Christ's birth. A thing that caught me this past week as I was studying and praying and preparing for this morning was these first three verses, I almost skipped over them myself. Because like one of the bigger points I want to make sits there in verse 4. What I was going to do was just come and preach a sermon basically surrounding verse 4. I was going to breeze right past verses 1, 2, and 3. But it's to our detriment that we do this because we look at it and we go, okay, a guy named Caesar and a guy named Quirinius, who is he, Syria? I don't know. Some people have to go and get counted in a census and do some stuff. Let's get down to the meat of it. When's Jesus going to be born here? All right? That's how we sort of approach these first couple of verses. But it's to our detriment to breeze through verses 1, 2, and 3, verses that just seem so peripheral on the edges, on the fringes of the Jesus Christmas story that we scoot right past them. And I say that it's to our detriment that we breeze through them so easily because it's these details right here in verses 1, 2, and 3 that show the promise keeper at work in his world. You see, Caesar doesn't know it, but behind his decree and over his decree stands the Lord God omnipotent, sovereignly orchestrating the fulfillment of the promises that he has given. 700 years before the birth of Christ, you start traveling back to the time of the prophets, and what you find is that God had told his people some 700 years before the birth of Christ through the prophet Micah that the Messiah to come, this king who was going to come, this anointed one who would come and be the king that we need to save people from their sins, the prophet Micah said that this Messiah king would be born in the town of Bethlehem of Judea. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, you read this, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, now notice the language of promise here, from you shall, not from you might, not from you, well, I sir hope he comes from Bethlehem, but no, from you shall. This will take place, he says. You shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 stands as one of the many 
prophetic promises concerning the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Caesars are going to do what Caesars are going to do. Caesars rule, Caesars reign, Caesars make decrees that move people, uproot people from one town to the next. But Luke is giving us eyes to see that the mighty emperor of Rome and all of his plans are merely a pawn in the hands of God as he makes good on the promises that he has given to us. You see, if you were to ask, why is Joseph, why are Mary getting on their animal and making their way to Bethlehem? Why? What, what is going on here? Why are they going to be registered in the town of Bethlehem? One answer is the historical answer. And the historical reason why Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem is because Caesar Augustus in Rome, as an exercise of imperial power, says, I want a registration. I want a census, and that involves you, Joseph, and that involves you, Mary, so you're going to get up and you're going to go. That's one reason why. But the divine reason, not just the historical reason, but the divine reason why Jesus was born in Bethlehem is because from of old, Yahweh promised by his sovereign decree that the Messiah King would come from Bethlehem. And so here are these things being played out as the promise keeper is at work in his world. And so this teaches us something, saints. And what this teaches us is that the seemingly innocuous events of life do not fall beyond the sovereign reach of our God. Think about it. Joseph is just doing life. Joseph finds himself under the rule of imperial Rome. Joseph is now told by the local magistrate, you are now going to go to Bethlehem. And so Joseph packs up his family and goes to Bethlehem. Seemingly innocuous. It's just the, the muck and the mire and the dust and the dirt of just normal everyday life. But what Luke is saying is, listen, pause for a second. Slow down and take a breath. Breathe in the facts afresh. There's more going on here than just a dude in a town having to go another town because some government official wants something to be done. There's more at play here. And if the seemingly innocuous events of Joseph's life do not fall beyond the sovereign reach of our God, then what you need to know is that the seemingly innocuous events of your life do not fall beyond the sovereign reach of our God. Our God, our living God, he is not some cosmic watchmaker who wound up the world in Genesis 1 and then steps back and surveys all that he created with some apathetic disinterest. That is not what our Bible teaches us. We need to let the Word of God inform us how we approach God and His world that He has made. That is not what's going on. He is not apathetic. He is not disinterested. Whether it's from nebulas in the universe to nuclei buried in the human cell, whether it's from Roman decrees to dust specks dancing in the sunbeam, not one atom moves more or less than God wishes it to. What you need to know is why. Why can we say this 
It's because, says a man named Abraham Kuyper, that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's mine. I'm orchestrating all things for the glory of my name, says the Lord God, and he is the one, the only one, who can live and breathe and speak and in such terms. You see, in the birth of the Bethlehem baby, God exercised his power. God is exercising his sovereign authority to guide events so that the time and circumstances would be as they needed to be for the coming of the Messiah. So whether it's the large tapestry of God's redemption from Genesis to Revelation or the smaller tapestry of just your life, your everyday comings and goings and going to work and going to CrossFit and cooking meals and changing diapers and searching for someone to marry and working through school and getting degrees, all of this is just sort of the mundane things and it's the smaller tapestry of our lives. And the danger can be as we step in we look at the Luke 2 story and we go, man, of course God was intervening here. Look at how large the tapestry of this beautiful story of redemption is. God loves to interact in that tapestry, but my itty-bitty, tiny, mundane, boring, banal, monotonous, day in, day out, every day, muck, mire, dirt, dust of life tapestry God doesn't really want anything to do with. And that's just patently untrue. Your Bible tells you otherwise that he is at work in his world. The promise keeper is keeping his promises. And for you to be in Christ means that those promises can now be applied to you. So whether it's that large tapestry of God's redemption or the smaller tapestry of our lives, if you stop, survey the events of the Christmas story, the Christmas story will remind you and will remind me that our moments and our days are woven with the unbreakable threads of divine guarantee. That's what we can see in these first three verses. Friends, the Christmas story is this, point number two, the promise keeper keeping his promises. It's just the promise keeper keeping his promises. That's what's going on. Look at your Bible. Look at how Luke keeps pressing this point home. Verse 4. Because Caesar wants a registration, verse 3 says, all went to be registered. And that meant something for Joseph. Verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which just so happens to be called Bethlehem. Why? Because he, Joseph, was of the house and lineage of David. He went there to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, for you to hear me say that the promise keeper keeps his promises, my hope is that you're going, uh, duh, like, right? Like, why else will we be calling him the promise keeper if he doesn't, <laughs> if he doesn't keep his promises? It's obvious, right, that God, if, it's, if God keeps his promises, we wouldn't be calling him the promise keeper. But the reason why I keep banging the drum on this idea is that the promise keeper keeps his promises is because 
uh, this, the, the, the news of this reality sort of lands on us with an oldness. Oh, yeah, 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 of course. Of course he keeps his promises. So there's a sense in which it's not new news, right? Like we all have a category for God being the promise keeper. But I keep saying this, and I think Luke wants us to see this because we are quick to forget what we already know, and we need help remembering what we often forget. All of us will give mental assent and say with our mouth, of course God is the promise keeper, and obviously that means he keeps his promises. But then we'll walk out the doors and go into the next six days and 22 hours, and we begin to live and eat and sleep and breathe as though it all lands on us. And what we don't trust and lean and walk in a way that reflects the realities that God is the one who keeps his promises. You see, Christmas is God keeping his promise. Christmas had to happen because God had promised that Christmas would happen. Because of Caesar's decree, Joseph and Mary left Nazareth to go to Bethlehem. And we just spent the first part of the sermon talking about how the move of Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem is the fulfillment of a prophetic promise. It's the fulfillment of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And it's this promise fulfilled that lays behind the Christmas hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem. So what I want you to do is in your mind's eye, sort of walk through verse 4 with me, specifically through the phrase, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. I want you in your mind's eye to lay hold of this reality of the city they're heading to is called Bethlehem. And how the Bethlehem location is the fulfillment of the promise. The author who wrote that little Christmas carol, A Little Town of Bethlehem, zooms in on a truth, a promise kind of truth that we find in that Christmas detail, that Christmas fact. Do you guys remember how it goes? O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep. The silent stars go by, yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting, notice, big letter L, light. It's the light of the world. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ there. He's the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. I think the author of this carol means a double meaning with thee. In thee, in Bethlehem. The hopes and fears are being met, but more specifically, in the Bethlehem baby. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Now, my guess is you have sung that Christmas carol a million times, and you sing it, and you're just like, like here we go again. You know I mean? Here, here it comes again. Yet another Christmas carol. But have you ever stopped to ask the question, Why? Why did the hopes and fears of all the years meet in the Bethlehem baby that night? Why? Why can the author of the Christmas carol say that and not be wrong? The answer to the question of why the hopes and fears of all the years are met in the Bethlehem baby that night is, guess what? It's found in yet more promises being kept. That's why he can say that. You see, when Luke reminds us that Joseph 
was of the house and lineage of David. That's not throwaway text. That's not him saying, well, I had some author's quota, you know, that Paul really wanted me to hit to make sure I had a really good long gospel. So I just had to fill in some words and I just thought I'd give some extraneous detail. You know, it's not really important. Just skip down to verse six and seven where we get to the Jesus being born stuff. That's not what he's doing. He is preloading with a doctor's precision, truth after truth, important detail after important detail. And one of the most important details of the birth of Christ is this, that Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus, Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. And what that means for Jesus is this. It means Jesus's genealogy is also linked to that exact same lineage. So you're sitting here going, who cares? What does that mean for us? Well, this is where you need to know where the two Jesus stories in your Bible come from. Because if you jump out of Luke and go back into Matthew chapter 1, what you find is this, that Matthew begins his entire gospel by talking about the genealogy of Jesus. And he specifically tells us that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then what you begin to realize is this, one of God's first redemptive promises made in the Bible was made to the man Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. For some of us, like the first couple pages of our Bible, you're starting to see promises show up. And what that promise is in Genesis 12 is where God promised to Abraham that someone descended from him would bring blessing to the entire world. Fast forward a couple of chapters, and you land in Genesis chapter 17, where God talks to Abraham again. He doubles down on that promise, but then further reveals that kings would also come from Abraham. Fast forward to another person in the lineage of Abraham, a man named David who became king, and you begin to see in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he receives an astounding promise from God, King David did. And what David was promised was that one of his descendants would reign over a kingdom that would never end, and that on the throne of David, there would be a king who would be established forever, not someone who would reign for 20, 30, 40 years, die, and go the way of the dodo. No, someone who would finally come, finally sit, finally reign, and never be dethroned. That's a huge promise. And the people of God would have received these promises and begin, how is this promise going to be fulfilled? Man, I really hope it does because Abraham was Abraham, but Abraham had problems. David was David, but David had some problems. We need someone who can come and be the fulfiller of Abraham's promise. Someone who can come and be the fulfiller of David's promise. So on one hand, you have the Abraham promise. One of your descendants will be a blessing to the nations. One of your descendants who would be the blessing to the nations is going to be a king. And then along comes the David promise. And the David promise is that one of your descendants, because you are a king in the lineage of Abraham, he's going to be a forever king who rules a forever kingdom. And the, and the carol writer, the Christmas carol writer's point is that the hopes that these things would come to pass, the hopes that these promises would be fulfilled, the fears at the times of the exiles and all the ways it just seemed like that these promises may not come to pass, the hopes and the fears of all these promises made, the carol writer says, did this. 
came crashing together in one single night in that Bethlehem manger. They met in the Bethlehem baby that night. In other words, when you stop and you enter into the inn, and with hushed silence, you peek into the manger, what you find is that the cosmic sun in the cradle was God keeping his promises to Abraham. With hushed awe, as you survey majesty incarnate laying in the manger, what you're witnessing is the promise to David being fulfilled. Jesus is the forever king that brings the blessing of God to the nations just as the promise keeper promised would happen. Therefore, because Christmas is all about God keeping his promises to us, the invitation to you and to me is to come and trust the promise keeper. Listen, the Advent story beckons us. Just like if you're going to a friend, you've discovered something good, you've found a new favorite dish, you've got a new, new favorite toy, you've found a new favorite book or a new ta- favorite TV show, and your friend is not so convinced that this thing is good, what you begin to do is plead, you begin to persuade, you begin to beckon them, no, please come, you're missing out on something if you do not come and lay hold of this. I'm beckoning you, I'm calling you, I want you to come and behold this good thing. I've tasted how good it is, I've seen how good it is. I want you to not miss out. I want you to participate. And so if you take that reality, if you've ever beckoned a friend or a family member or a co-worker to come and partake of something good, what you need to do is import that reality onto Luke chapter 2 right now and recognize that the Advent story is beckoning you and the Advent story is beckoning me to come and sink deep the roots of trust into our God because the Advent story is all about him clearly demonstrating that he will always keep all of his promises. And if he keeps all of his promises... He is worthy of our trust. And if he's worthy of our trust, it is good and right for us to come and sink deep our faith, sink deep our trust, sink deep our hopes and fears through all of the years into the one who can keep his promises. You see, it's the unbreakable faithfulness. Think about that. The unbreakable faithfulness of our God that fortifies our faith in Him. When centered on the living God, our faith is not unfounded, it's founded. It's grounded. In the end, we will not be put to shame for having an assurance of things hoped for in the Lord Jesus Christ. On the last day, when we stand before our holy God, we will not be played the fool for being certain of things unseen centered on Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Apostle Paul tells us all the promises of God find their yes in Him. What is that? Come, I'm beckoning you. 
lay hold of Christ by faith. Come, trust in him. So if God can keep the long-standing, hard-to-keep promises made to Abraham and made to David, I'm telling you, saints, then we can trust him to keep his promises to us as well. Promises like what? Promises like this. Promises to save everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Have you ever considered that? That's a promise right out of Romans chapter 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will, language of promise, be saved. If God could not keep his promise of the Christmas baby, then you should have no hope of him being able to keep that promise that if you call on his name that you will be saved. But because you can trust in him to keep his promise that he made as it relates to the Christmas baby, then you can bank literally your eternal soul on the one who says, if you come and repent of your sin, if you come and you call on me, if you turn from death and you turn to me who is life, you will be saved. Promise. My invitation for you is come test him on that promise. Try him and see if he's willing to keep his promise. Promises to be with us by his spirit. Promises to work for our good. Promises to bring us home to be with him in glory forever. See, friends, I wonder this. Do you know this promise-keeping God in a saving way? Do you know him in a saving way? Do you personally and genuinely know the promise that all who repent of sin and call on Jesus will be saved? Do you know this promise personally, truly, genuinely for yourself? The invitation for you this Christmas is the invitation to come and die. The invitation of Christmas, I need to preach a Christmas sermon one day called The Despair of Christmas. Most of you are like, man, I'm despairing already because I just got my credit card statement in the, in the mail the other day, and I'm despairing about Christmas, man. I'm talking about a different kind of despair. There's the kind of worldly, earthly despair where we go and tip towards sort of like depression and utter hopelessness. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the biblical kind of despair where the Christmas story says you need to come and die because the one who was born in the manger came to be born to die so that you might live. And we will only come to see the beautiful goodness of the gospel of Christmas when we despair of any hope of being able to save ourselves. If we're not coming to the end of ourselves, if we're not the lost son eating pig slop in Luke 15, if we're not dead, seeing ourselves dead in the bottom of the ocean of sin, the good news of Christmas is it's going to be like, man, I wish this guy would stop talking. I've got something in the oven. Can we get to the gifts and the credit card payments? You're, you're not going to see the good news of Christmas. But when you see the despair of Christmas, Christmas is an invitation to despair of any hope of saving yourself, despairing of any hope of seeing eternal life, in yourself, despairing of anything. It's the despair of Christmas that says, deny yourself. Pick up your cross. That is the death. Die to you. And then follow me. Christmas says, go low so that you can go high. Christmas says, die so that you might live. Christmas says, acknowledge you're truly blind so that you might see. Christmas says, sin has got you in darkness and you need to acknowledge that darkness so that you might enter into the light. 
There you go. I don't have to preach the sermon on the despair of Christmas. You guys just got it right there, okay? The invitation for you this Christmas is the invitation to die to any hope of saving yourself. The invitation of Christmas is to come, trust, trust in the promise keeper, come and trust in him alone for your salvation. All that because he kept his promise and gave us the Bethlehem baby. Amen? All right, let's pray. Jesus, we come to you. We recognize who you are. You're the Bethlehem baby, but you didn't stay the Bethlehem baby. Uh, You grew in the wisdom, fullness, the stature of men. Every step of the way, proving your perfection, proving you are who the Scriptures say you are, the Holy One of God. And you weren't born just to live, but you were born to live so that by living you would then turn and die. And through your death on the cross, subsequent burial in a grave, subsequent resurrection from that grave, there, right there, do we find the only hope for our salvation. Lord, some of us are here this morning and we are uh, born again. You've caused us to be born again. Lord, I'm asking that you would stoke the awe of Christmas in our hearts this morning. That we would lay hold of these things afresh and then we would go and we'd begin to tell people as a result. Some of us are here this morning and we don't know this is Jesus in a saving way? We've never trusted looking to Jesus, trusting in the promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, would you open our eyes, open their eyes to see that today could be the day of their salvation, the best gift that anyone could ever receive at Christmas, the gift, the miracle of being born again, resurrected unto newness of life. God, do these things so that Jesus and Jesus alone would receive the glory he's worthy to receive in our lives. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.